The reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. For those of you that uh, came in a little later, my name is Josh Prather. I'm one of the elders here. I'm a pastor at Redemption Church. My role centrally is to oversee community and global initiatives. So if you think of loving neighbors outside of our community and context, so refugees, Muslims, global neighbors, anything like that, the poor, I'm trying to help shape the values and philosophy for how we do that at our 10 congregations. But this is home for my wife and I. I'm an elder here, and it's always a privilege to be able to open God's word and to, to go at it. So Let's get after it. Psalm 23. Open your Bibles with me. The big idea for the talk today is God walked through the valley. God walked through the valley for us. And uh, I think it's incredible how this psalm opens because it opens with God's intent and his vision for what he longs for us to have. So read it again with me. The Lord is my shepherd. So saying God is a shepherd. And in this time with Israel, this is not a light task. A shepherd is someone who provides. A shepherd is someone who leads towards, towards provision. A shepherd is someone that protects a lot of times. So a shepherd is a big role, and it was a big source of income for the people. So to say the Lord is my shepherd is not light. I shall not want. What he's saying is that God so overwhelms me. And I'm in such a paradise in this place that all my wants are found in God. I want nothing else but God. He's my only vision. Be thou my vision, if you know that song. God is everything to me at this time. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's a beautiful picture. He leads me beside still waters. I'm going to read it slow just so it sinks in. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's a beautiful opening. And beautiful to know that God actually does this. He doesn't give us the option for it. God is the one that makes us. He makes me lie down. You know, sheep sometimes aren't the brightest animals, and sometimes we aren't that bright. But to know that God has this beautiful picture for us, he said, I am going to make you lie down here and get some rest by this still water beautiful picture. And it honestly, it takes me back to another image. It takes me back to Genesis 1 and 2. And I start to think about the way things were once upon a time in God's creation, once upon a time in God's kingdom. And we get this beautiful picture in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me read it. Starting in Genesis 2, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. 
And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. It goes on just to display this beautiful picture of what God intended for his people. A beautiful picture that we see in the Psalms. And I also think about my time as a whitewater guide in Colorado. So when I got out of college, I was a whitewater guide in Buena Vista, Colorado, with a company called Noah's Ark. And I was a guide down Browns Canyon in the Arkansas River. And a lot of times I can remember it like it was yesterday. You're on the raft, and if you don't know how a raft is set up, you know, the guide's in the back, and he has his guide stick that is the rudder, and everybody else is in the boat, usually three on each side. And I can remember these moments on the river where you're just floating down and it's completely serene and tranquil. You have these granite walls that are coming up the side. You can smell the pines. You can smell the juniper trees. You can look up into the sky and you look at the clouds and it's this beautiful blue sky. You can hear the birds sing. You hear sparrows. You can see an eagle. You can see a falcon. Literally, I remember drifting down the river and people in the boat would close their eyes and just listen. And then they would open their eyes up to the sky. It's an incredible moment. I did as well. Serene, beautiful, peaceful. And I wish, church, that's where we live life. I wish we stayed right there in Genesis 1 and 2. I wish I stayed, a lot of times, right there on the river. But we know that we live in a different world and we're part of a different story. Because in Genesis 3, what happens is that our wants are distorted. Our wants are distorted. No longer do we look at God and say, you are my only want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want anything but you. I look at you and am fully satisfied. No, that's not what happens. We start to have a different vision for our wants. It says this in Genesis 3. He said to the woman, and this is Satan talking to Eve, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And here's what shifts, is that you start in Genesis 1 and 2 and you start at the beginning of this psalm with this vision of God being everything to us. He is our only want. We want God. And then in Genesis 3, something radically changes and what happens is we want to be God. All of a sudden, it goes from wanting God and putting him as everything. I want nothing else but you. And then in one moment, that's distorted and our wants change. And all of a sudden, we're pulled after idols. We're pulled after anything else that will satisfy us. And I think about where we're at here in the Biltmore area. And the thing I think about most that we struggle with that we want so dearly is money and power. What we will do, church, for money and power. It can consume us. Idols can consume us. No longer do we just want the Lord, and he becomes the whole of everything we want. There's something else that has to fill that gap, because we were made to worship. We were made 
to want. So something will fill the gap if it's not the Lord. And I think where we sit so often with us and the people in this community is it happens to be money and power. I'm so thankful that Jim Moreland and Steve Wheeler are on the elder board with me. It's a privilege to be able to spend, spend time with them because they were in the marketplace for so long and they know the struggle that this is. And talking with Jim, I was just down at Royal Coffee in the Biltmore area, talking with him about this, and you could just see it on Jim's face. You know, you just see the struggle that it was for him, and just like, you could just see the struggle it is for this community, this idolatry of money and power and what we do to get it. If you're not familiar with what an idol is, an idol is something that you rely on instead of God for your salvation. It's something you worship. It's something you bow down to. It's something you bow your knee to and say, this is where I find my worth. This is where I find my salvation. You might find yourself saying things like this. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have authority and influence over others. That would be power. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I am highly productive and getting a lot done. That would be work, idolatry. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth. Hear this. If I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Is that where you find your value? Is that where you find your worth? Can you look at the Lord and say, you're all I want? Or when we really search ourselves, and that's what I ask you to do right now, search yourself, is something else there that is pulling for our desires? Is there something else in you right now that you want more than the Lord? Is it calling to you? Is it giving you your value? Is it giving you your worth? Are you bowing down to it as I speak? It's what you're thinking about instead of the Lord. An idol, let me read you this quote. An idol is whatever demands our full devotion or ultimate commitment and to which we grant ultimate value. Just because you don't address something as your deity doesn't mean that it, that it doesn't function as your God. Just like the idols of old, these contemporary idols are bloodthirsty and hard to appease. Akin to their pagan predecessors, modern idolers are still willing to sacrifice their children, marriage, health, purity, job, and personal safety in order to satisfy their God. What is it that you lay in front of you and say, I would give absolutely everything for fill in the blank? I said money and power. It doesn't have to be yours, but I think that's one we struggle with the most in this area. Tim Keller wrote a book. If you're interested in learning more about this, it's an incredible book called Counterfeit Gods. And he actually was interviewed about this because the book was highly acclaimed. And he sat down and someone asked him this, is it necessary to suffer disappointment before seeing that idols don't satisfy must I suffer before I see that what I'm desiring and wanting so much will not fill the gap? It will not provide for me what I want it to. And here's what Tim Keller says, pastor in, in New York. He said, I fear that you might be right. I don't want that to be true. Very often it's much stronger than disappointment. What he's saying is it's much stronger so often than just mere disappointment when people come face to face with their idol. It's hard for me to look at a young person and know that their idol and know their idols because usually something has to happen in their life to frustrate them for them to see something has inordinate power over them. 
No one can learn about idols or be taught. This is something that you have to learn on your own. You can't be told. You can't be taught. This is something you have to learn on your own. And I think this sin, what happens in Genesis 3, is what takes us to the valley of the shadow of death. Because God intended for us to have the garden. God intended for us. God wants for us to be in the pasture next to the stream. He wants to lead us beside still waters. He wants to restore our soul. But instead of looking to him and saying, you're all I want, we want to worship ourselves. And then that puts us in front of the valley of the shadow of death. And that's where we pick up. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rob and your staff, they comfort me. In just one moment, we're sitting here in the garden, everything's beautiful, everything's serene, everything is peaceful, and now we're standing in front of the valley of the shadow of death, and notice how the conversation shifts. David goes, who's writing the psalm, David goes from talking about God and proclaiming what is true about God to actually having a conversation with God, and all of us can relate to that. Because when things are good and we're in the pasture, we start talking about God as if he's at a distance. But then all of a sudden, we sin, we worship ourselves instead of worshiping God, and then we come face to face with the Lord. And that's when we're actually having a conversation with him. That's when we see him right in front of us, and it shifts. And he says, I will fear no evil. Even in the midst of this, I will fear no evil. How is that even possible? to walk into the valley of the shadow of death, but look at the Lord and say, I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be afraid. What does he say? He says, because you are with me. You are with me, and it's a promise that in the midst of the valley, God will be with you. The rod and the staff, it's not something to condemn you, to punish you. The rod is to protect you. The crook on the end of the, of the staff was actually to pull a sheep out of harm's way. The staff is to, to ward off enemies. God is with you and walking with you in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. The only consistent thing, here's what I want us to see, that the circumstances change. We find ourselves at first, we're in this beautiful, picturesque moment, and then we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, and soon we're going to be feasting at the Lord's table. The one thing that doesn't change in this story is the shepherd consistent, steadfast. Our lives are not. Our lives are not steadfast. Our lives are not consistent. Oftentimes we find ourselves in this serene, picturesque moment. Sometimes we find ourselves standing in front of the valley of the shadow of death, but God is faithful, and God is consistent through all of it. But going back to my story, um, if you know anything about whitewater rafting, you know, oftentimes people don't go whitewater rafting for the serene, picturesque moments, do they? <laughs> At least I didn't. You know, they come for what? The rapids, right? So you go from this moment where you're drifting down the river, it's beautiful, everybody's eyes are gazed up, there's not a care in the world, you're taking it all in, and then all of a sudden, you hear the rapid in front of you. And what does every single person in the boat do? They look back at me. Like, what, what is that? What, what am I hearing? And in just a moment, everything they were taking in, they're taking in this beautiful moment. They're taking in the birds. They're taking in the sky. They're looking at the cliffside. I mean, everything. They're just smelling. They're seeing. They're experiencing. And all of a sudden, all of that fades away, and complete fear 
strikes people and they look back at me. And I remember being in the boat. I remember when I was actually learning to be a guide, snow was still falling on the river. It was terrible. Oh my goodness, terrible. Snow was still falling on the Arkansas River. I was frigid. I was cold. And there's this massive rapid that you come up to called Zoom Flume. And you can just hear the roar of it. And the first time it went down, I remember I looked back and our guide was steadfast. His name was Rob. And he is like the epitome still of like male masculinity in a good way. I mean, you just think a guy that's just like rock solid, man. Like unwavering, steadfast. And why? Why when all of us are like, first of all, freezing and he's just fine. I'm frigid, I'm scared to death. Why is he not? Because he's been down the river a hundred times, right? He's been there. He's like, guys, I've actually walked this way already. I've actually been down the river in front of you. And what if I looked back in the midst of it when I'm frigid, I'm scared, I'm cold, I look back, and he bailed. <laughs> and he's like, sorry, I'm scared. I just had to go. Okay, I couldn't do it. You know, I've done it before, but this time I just got really scared. I couldn't do it. No, right? Not only is he saying, you know what, I've been down the river so many times, you don't have to worry. He's saying, I'm going to go down with you. I'm going to be right next to you. But oftentimes when we read psalms like this, we think that God has bailed from the boat. We think that God has walked up to safety. And now he's staring down as we're in peril, looking at us. Staring down and saying, oh man, that looks tough, sorry. Without a solution to the problem. But that's not the case and that's not the gospel. That's not the truth that God gives us. The truth that God gives us is we come to the valley of the shadow of death and we bring all our baggage with us because we're the ones that put ourselves in front of it. Our wants and our idols are what puts us in front of the valley about to walk through it with no hope of ever making it out alive. Zero hope that you're going to go into this valley or into this rapid and make it out alive. And Jesus steps in front and says, let me take your boat. You step out. You go up, you get on safety, and I'll go through for you. And you say, Jesus, you can't, because you don't know what's actually in this raft. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what you actually have to take on yourself before you go down the river. And he says, actually, I do know, and I'll take it. So let me go. So Jesus heads down the river and is consumed willingly, willingly consumed by the rapids. And he's taken under and he dies on our behalf while he gives us, because we turn to him and say, we have to have you, Jesus. He says, stand up here on safety, stand up here. And he goes through for us, but he's not defeated in it. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that three days later, Jesus actually comes out the other end of the valley as the conquering hero. And now, with Jesus, we can actually have the strength to actually go down. In the midst of life, when valleys come before us and we're thinking, we can't do this, we recognize, Jesus, you've already done it, number one. You've already gone down this way. And in you, with you, I can actually look back, terrified, crying in the middle of the boat. And Jesus is stoic, man. Steadfast, unwavering. He's the peace, the serenity, everything that we long for at the beginning of this psalm, we now find in Jesus. 
everything that we want. We hear the waters roaring in front of us, and we're terrified because we don't know what's going to come. And we look back at Jesus. He's calm. He's at peace. He's resting. He's the pasture that we long for, church. It's no longer a heavenly kingdom withdrawn just from Jesus. No, it's the man. We come after him, and that's where we find our rest. That's the truth of the gospel, is that we come to him and say, we can't make it down this valley alone. And Jesus says, I've already been down, and guess what? I'm going to go with you. We got to go down again. I'll be right there with you as you go. Jesus walked through the valley of death so that we now could have life. So because he went through by faith and trust in him, we now have life through him. But here's where we usually go wrong, I feel like, in the church, is we revel in the gospel and what God has done for us because it's a beautiful picture. Isn't the gospel beautiful? It's amazing. It, gosh, it just it nourishes our hearts when we think about what Jesus has done on our behalf when we didn't deserve it. But now, he turns around and looks at the valley and he says, it's time to go back. And at first, we might be shocked. What do you mean it's time to go back? And he says, there's still more people in there. There's still more people on the other side. And we have to go to them. And that's how this psalm moves because it comes to verse 5 and says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We started this psalm and we've moved through this psalm with only two people. It's been God and David. And then all of a sudden, there's a third party. All of a sudden, there's an enemy sitting at the table. And God says, I want that enemy at this table. I want that enemy in my kingdom. You look at him as an enemy. I want, I want to feast with him. Invite him to the table. It's time to go back in. Matthew 10 says this. This is my paraphrase, but I think it's true to Matthew 10. It says, I am giving you authority to go out and to bless your enemies, but know that you will be sheep in the midst of wolves. These enemies and wolves will cause you physical and emotional pain, but this pain will bring you to the table to proclaim to them the goodness of Jesus and to proclaim to those in need of God's grace. Don't fear the valley. This is Jesus saying to us. Don't fear the valley of death because it can only destroy the body, but I can destroy the soul. I know the hair is on your head. I made you and I knit you. The gospel will divide families, the good news of Jesus. It will divide families, but I must remain above all in everything. Now that you have Jesus, if you are found in him, he must be everything. He is the fullness of what you long for. He's the fullness of what you want. I promise you that the one who walks through the valley will find life, but the one who walks around it will lose it. And here's the mystery of the gospel, is that we think that if we walk around the valley, that we will preserve our lives, and God says you're going to lose it. When he calls you back in, and he says it's time to go back in, and I'm going to go with you, and we say, no, I, I think I'll just step aside. I think I'll go around because it's pretty up here and I don't want to go back down through the valley. And the secret of the gospel is that's death and it's not life. God says, if you want to live, you have to die. And it's not just once and for all, though it is. We die 
to ourselves and we live to Christ. But daily now, church, he's saying, I want you back in the valley because there's people there that need me. And if no one goes, how will they hear? How will they see if there's no one there to live out the gospel in front of them? Someone's got to go. And at first, we're shocked because we say that takes us away from our protection, our comfort, and our safety. You're asking us to leave all of it. But the truth is, and you know this if you're a follower of Jesus, that that stuff isn't life. Life is found only when you lay it down. Then you live. And if you're new to the gospel, I have to be honest, this sounds ridiculous. (laughs) It sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? So you're telling me to abandon safety, abandon, abandon my health, abandon my comfort, abandon the protection of going around the trouble, going around the valley of the shadow of death. But to us who are in Jesus, we understand it. And it's not my job as a pastor, I'm so thankful for this, to save you. It's God's job to save you. And if Jesus wants to reveal the truth of this to you, he'll do it in a moment. And you'll be with us. You'll be moving forward with us into the valley where people are in desperate need of Jesus. I remember my last day on the river. How we go is uh, in pods. So if you know anything about whitewater rafting, there's like probably six boats in a pod. I think that's the accurate number. And I was at the front of the pod. So I was the lead boat. And we come to the second to last rapid in, in Browns Canyon. It's a toilet bowl. <laughs> And Zoom Flume are the last two rapids. So it's known, though, that these two rapids are the most dangerous, especially, well, not Zoom Flume, excuse me, Widowmaker. So Toilet Bowl and Widowmaker, that's what it's called, yeah. So Widowmaker is known to be one of the most dangerous rapids because it has an undercut rock and people have lost their lives there. If they bounce out, they can get sucked under the rock and the current's so strong that you can't get them out and people have actually lost their lives there. And I had been discipled by Rob the lead guide, for three months about what to do in this scenario. He taught me. He trained me. He walked with me. So I go through. I get past Toilet Bowl, and I turn around. I turn around, turn my boat, and I'm drifting with the current. I'm looking back at the boat behind me, taking it easy, waiting for them to get through the rapid. And then all of a sudden, they go straight over Toilet Bowl, and I'm watching, and I'm just praying, oh, Lord, no. And just in a moment, they flip all six of them, heading into the most dangerous rapid on the river. And what does everyone do? Turns back to look at me, right? Turns back, what are we going to do? And had I not been discipled, had I not been and taken on Rob's yoke upon myself, I would have freaked out. But I'd been discipled by the master, and I knew exactly what to do in that moment. So in a moment, we pedaled back in, paddled back in, everybody back in the boat, everybody held on, everybody made it through safe. And that is what is happening with us in Jesus. It's not us, and it's not our courage that's taken us back into the valley, church. It's because we have been discipled, we've been trained, we've taken on the yoke of the master. So now it gives us the courage and the strength to have a vision of the way things should be and why we have to go back into the valley, why we have to go back in for enemies, Sometimes, people that are opposed to us, it turns us towards them and says, we're going back after you because I've been discipled by the master and I know this is the way that it has to be.
but there's hope. There's hope in this text, and there's hope in our lives because we look at the truth of who Jesus is, and we look at the true story of the world, the Bible, and we say, it doesn't end in the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm very thankful for that. That's not the end for us as a church. Because if you're in Jesus, there is, there is hope for you. There is troubles in life. There are valleys. There is death in this life. Many of you have experienced it. We will experience it. Oftentimes, we take ourselves into it because of our idols. But God gives us hope in the end, and that's where we pick up and end this psalm. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is this incredible host, and he's gathering us all to the table to have a feast in front of our enemies, saying, I have triumphed over the enemies. I have triumphed over Satan, sin, and evil. Let's have a feast at the table. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, sitting at God's table. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We start in a garden, in this beautiful moment, in this pasture, where God is lying us down next to still waters. We start in Genesis 1 and 2 with this beautiful garden that God has us in, but then we end in Revelation 21 and 22, and we end in this psalm with a picture of God's kingdom and God's house, that God is actually welcoming us home, and that's our hope, and that's what gives us life. If we just look for all the comforts and the health and the prosperity in this life, it'll always keep us from the valley where God needs us. But we look into the future. We look into the way things will be one day when Jesus comes again. The way things will be one day when we see him face to face. John 14 says this, let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus said to him, I am the way I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Everything you could possibly want in life, if you didn't know this, if you're new to the church, if this is your first time, or if you've been a disciple for years, everything we possibly want is found in Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. If you want life, you go to him. I want to read this psalm and end our time by reading this from God's perspective, as if God is singing this over us, as if God is actually praying this psalm over us. I am your shepherd, and you shall not want. I make you, God is saying, lie down in green pastures. I lead you beside still waters, and I restore your soul. I lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear evil, for I am with you, and my rod and my staff, they will comfort you. And I prepare a table before you in the presence of your, enemy, of your enemies. 
I anoint your head with oil, and your cup now overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, and you shall dwell in my house with me forever. That's good news. Pray with me, if you would. Father, I thank you for the truth of this psalm. It does restore our soul to think about what Jesus has done and how we walk the valley of the shadow of death in our place. God, I'm thankful that what we see in this life and what we're experiencing is not the end, that there is a hope to be found in the life to come. God, there is suffering, there is pain, but God, we look to you, and that is where we put our trust, and that is where we put our hope. God, we thank you that you welcome us into your home. In your home, there are many rooms, and you prepare a place for us. And Jesus, you tell us you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We are grateful above all for Jesus, and in his name I pray. Amen.